0: Welcome to On the Middle East, the podcast of the award-winning media service, El Monitor, where each week we talk with the decision-makers and thought leaders who are making the news and shaping the trends in the Middle East. I'm Andrew Parasoliti, president of El Monitor, and our guest today is Dr. Denise Natale, director of the Center for Strategic Research at the National Defense University's Institute for National Strategic Studies, and a former Assistant Secretary of State for Conflict and Stabilization Operations. My conversation with Dr. Denise Natali about lessons learned in conflict stability and how they apply to the Middle East after this short break.
1: One of the key issues is who is in Damascus what kind of government is in Damascus and who we can work with so I think that once we have some form of legitimate government determined by the Syrian people that can run the state of Syria everything is not going to magically disappear but we certainly can channel and allow those types of revenue sharing agreements um, power sharing agreements that we saw emerge, in Iraq between the Kurds in Iraq and the Iraqi government be formulated in some type of power sharing arrangement in Syria.
0: Welcome back. Before we bring in Denise Natali, I wanted to share a quick thought on the Biden administration's policy toward Iran. So far, the administration is strengthening the U.S. diplomatic and deterrent position toward Iran every day. At least that's how I see it. First, rather than jump back into the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, JCPOA, or Iran nuclear deal, as it's known, Biden has chosen to first rebuild trust and consensus with America's European partners. The Trump administration, in breaking from the JCPOA in May 2018, had gone it alone on Iran. And while the Trump sanctions on Iran, known as maximum pressure, really hurt Iran's economy, in the process, the maximum pressure policies also alienated European allies and undercut the US diplomatic position. The US diplomatic position, it seems to me, is stronger with Europe than without Europe in confronting Iran. Second, in recent years, there has been a more open Israel-Gulf alignment over a shared concern of Iranian intentions. The U.S. brokered normalization agreements known as the Abraham Accords between Israel on the one hand and the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, Morocco, and Sudan on the other, has institutionalized this trend and in the process further strengthened the administration's diplomatic hand. And all this might be working. Last week, in a potential opening for renewed nuclear diplomacy, Mohsen Razai, he's the head of Iran's Expediency Council and former head of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, the IRGC, said Iran may be willing to re-engage on talks on the JCPOA if the U.S. sends a clear signal that U.S. sanctions would be lifted in less than one year. Now, this is significant because it gives some cover for Iranian President Hassan Rouhani, who has so far been steadfast that the U.S. needs to lift sanctions first before Iran would get back into compliance with the Iran nuclear deal. Iran Foreign Minister Mohammad Javad Zarif followed up Razai's comments by saying that he will soon present Iran's plan of action. So perhaps this is an opening for some creative diplomatic choreography, or perhaps not. This all remains to be seen. In the meantime, Iran doesn't and won't take a holiday from its policies in Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, and the Gulf. This past week, Yemen's Ansar Allah group, they're known as the Houthis, escalated hostilities against Saudi Arabia. In response, it seems to the Biden administration's initiative to try to bring peace to Yemen. And despite a recalibration of U.S. policy towards Saudi Arabia over the killing of journalist Jamal Khashoggi, the U.S. is standing behind the kingdom and has sent B-52 bombers to the region as a sign of its support. The U.S. has also not shied away from confronting Iran with force, such as as it did this month against Iran-backed militias in Syria. The Islamic Republic is likely to continue to challenge and probe the resolve of the United States and its partners. And the Biden administration, it seems to me, is willing to confront Iran in these theaters. Deterrence goes hand in hand with diplomacy. And now to our conversation today, Dr. Denise Natali is the Acting Director of the Institute for National Strategic Studies, INSS, and Director of the INSS Center for Strategic Research at the National Defense University. She also served as Assistant Secretary of State for Conflict and Stabilization Operations during the Trump administration. Dr. Natali has also held positions with an NGO in Peshawar, Pakistan, with the American Red Cross in Washington, D.C., with the Dart at the American University of Iraq Suleimani in the Kurdistan region of Iraq, and as a columnist for Al-Monitor. Denise is also known as one of the world's leading scholars on Iraqi and Kurdish issues and is the author of two highly regarded academic books on the Kurds. My conversation with Denise Natali begins now. Denise, welcome to On the Middle East.
1: Thank you, Andrew. Good afternoon, it's great to be back at El Monitor.
0: Great to have you back. Let's get right into it. As Assistant Secretary of State for Conflict and Stabilization Operations during the Trump administration, you oversaw the development of a new methodology and innovative metrics for conflict and stabilization policies. And this was informed by the Bipartisan Global Fragility Act. Linda Robinson of RAND mentioned this last week on our show. Tell us about these innovations and conflict and stabilization policies in the general sense, and then we can get into how this all may apply in some of the Middle East cases.
1: Sure. Thanks, Andrew. I just want to start off just to reinforce I'm not in the administration in the current administration, I left my position at state in December. Uh, on December 18th, 2020. These are my views, not those of the US government, the Department of Defense or the National Defense University where I'm currently um, positioned. As you indicated, so this is a really exciting time actually because the Global Fragility Act, which was a a very innovative step, uh, bipartisan legislation from Congress, that was signed into law uh, in 2019. And from this, from this legislation, the State Department led through the Bureau of Conflict and Stabilization Operations, with the Office of Foreign Assistance, and in collaboration with our other bureaus. We had very strong interagency collaboration with DOD, USAID, Treasury, uh, the NSC, and Congress, and a lot of civil society. We took months and crafted the strategy to prevent conflict and promote stability. This is a com- key component of the Global Fragility Act. And we submitted that to Congress, the State Department submitted that to Congress on December 18, 2020. The, the purpose of it was to devise more targeted efforts to strengthen fragile states and to promote more stable self-reliant nations that can become robust economic and security partners for the united states now the, the key point here is this was a very new approach to stabilization um, it required fundamental change in the way that we look at conflict prevention and stabilization what are some of the the new and innovative uh, components of this one of them again stepping back Our approach, the new approach was based on lessons learned from the past. We we knew we could not um, continue drinking or producing the same wine in old bottles, that what we did in in Iraq and Afghanistan um, was largely, or in many measures, failures or failures to effectively use uh, our taxpayer dollars. And so we, we needed a new approach. What did that mean? It means instead of externally driven nation building our approach would be locally driven, tied to to clear political outcomes. We would not engage in large scale projects, but start small and then build out. We had to work through locally legitimate actors, invest in partnerships, link our efforts to policy outcomes, and of course to continuously measure and determine our impact. Partnership is a very big component of this. Um, and that regards compact-based partnerships, bilateral and multilateral partnerships as well. So this was again a real effort to look at what we did wrong in the past and there was also some goodness and do better by being more targeted. Now there's a second component to this as well and, and the nature of conflict itself Had changed. One of the key capabilities of the Bureau of Conflict and Stabilization Operations is this very um, sophisticated um, capability to forecast violence and global conflict trends through their IMAP. And they use data analytics, look at where conflict is, devise heat maps, and and all of this uh, other um, capabilities. What we found was that, and and, and this has been um, driven in by the recent. Institute for International Strategic Studies report on armed conflict. The conflicts are interstate, largely not between states, and we are witnessing more non state armed groups emerge in the last eight years than in the previous seven decades. These non state armed groups have also increased conflict amongst themselves. It's more uneven in lower conflicts and more regional actors playing an outsized role in fragile states. So between the strategy itself to be more targeted and understanding the nature of conflict, we needed a different approach.
0: Denise, one of the major challenges for post-conflict stabilization has been disarmament, demobilization and reintegration of ex-combatants. That's known as DDR. This has, of course, been a challenge in the Middle East, especially in the region's three wars, Libya, Yemen, and Syria, uh, because of the role of non-state armed groups and actors. What did your study tell us about what works, what doesn't, and what we should be doing when we get, hopefully soon, to post-conflict DDR operations in those countries and elsewhere?
1: sure thank you andrew um this is a very i'm glad you brought this up because this this falls from the nature of conflict the ddr component and what we called it at at cso at the bureau of conflict and stabilization operations we frame that in security sector stabilization and that is one of the areas of expertise of um, what do you do with the Tens and thousands of armed groups non state armed groups, some are called hybrid actors after wars are over or, or during or, or during peace processes. And so th- this was something that we, we looked at, because these are not any longer official parts of the state, um, but they certainly need to be considered when you're trying to stabilize regions, particularly at a local level. So even though some of the lessons we learned or some, some of the trends that we found was even though every context is different, there were certain um, similarities. These non-state armed groups, um, they may be spoilers. And in many cases, they are. They're mafia groups, they're terrorists, but they also assert territorial control. They have de facto authorities. They provide services and even stability that the state itself can no longer provide. So some of the questions in in one of the key debates is particularly when you're engaging in peace negotiations, for example, do you engage them? Uh, If you do, to what extent? Um, There have been some indicators of success in the defections part. And CSO did actively work on defections. You can do that through messaging and you can do that through a lot of other efforts where you get really, uh, where the difficulties come or greater challenges when it comes into reintegrating these groups into society. There's, you can also attempt to reintegrate them into state security forces. The, the vast majority of groups do not give up their arms. There have been some cases during pre- peace process where they have, and that includes Colombia and the FARC. But, but, but the reality is most are gonna maintain their arms and most, if not all of these groups are not going to go away anytime soon. So then the question is what how do you address them and, and we did find even though that there are individual efforts at local levels um, unofficially unofficial ways to reintegrate, your most effective strategy is one where the state itself is engaged, the host country government develops a strategy and has laws to support it and that is not only about individual, former fighters it's about the communities themselves in which they're going to reintegrate so it's a it's a holistic process that starts from the defections and goes into the reintegration part but it but it's you shouldn't expect much because there there has to be categories of these groups and you find that there's a small sliver of categories of of these former fighters that are acceptable to to to, to the communities that is they they weren't considered terrorists they didn't engage in acts and they're integratable The the real issue is the vast majority that are are non-integratable, and therefore, they remain a thorn in in the security component. So um, that's one component of the security sector stabilization. How do you set the conditions so that you can then get into some form of also security sector reform? The other way to look at this, too, and and this is what CSO does, um, is to if you want to have a more targeted approach, and that goes back to our, our global fragility strategy or the strategy to prevent conflict, is you have to better understand the nature of these groups. And this is where um, there's there's pockets of, of better understanding. But we have found through our work, there's been fantastic work coming out of Chatham House on hybrid actors. But the groups are not homogenous, particularly in the Middle East. Let, let me focus on them in the Middle East. They're fragmented. They have different degrees of loyalty. Many, if not most, are tied to Iran, but they're not equally tied to Iran. They are horizontally networked. And they are, again, as I indicated before, hybrid actors. So, so rather than looking at these are the bad ones and the good ones, as was indicated in this very strong Chatham House report by, by Dr. Mansoor, um, look at them as networked across society. And that that leads to a fundamentally different type of, of policy in dealing with stabilization than as opposed to we're going to find the good ones and we're going to integrate them and then we're going to isolate the bad ones.
0: When you look at the Middle East and some of the armed groups there and the armed actors, is it possible to even consider DDR with former ISIS fighters and what has been the success or lack of success for dealing with them? And does that even apply in this case?
1: Sure. Um, in the Middle East, let, I, I can talk to some of the work that we did in, um, in, in looking at and this though this was in Africa dealing with uh, former Boko Haram fighters and other fighters that were tied to ISIS West Africa, um, there were some metrics and some um, successes, but that takes a long time. And as I said, um, you're you're able to encourage the defections, but you need a very um, engaged government. And security forces to get them not only in um, to defect, but then you're talking about de-radicalization programs, psychological programs, programs that can reintegrate them with jobs and, and, and community services. Getting the community itself to even accept their people back. In, in into their society and that's that's one of the biggest challenges it's not only once they defect but m- most of these groups or individuals excuse me are are shunned by the communities themselves so how do you sensitize communities to be able to take uh to reintegrate and and, and I, I i have to tell you Andrew, i don't there's not a whole lot of success. When you look at, for example, Syria and Yemen, you've got you know tens and thousands of fighters, many of them that have just emerged over the last decade or so during the wars, and um, operating apart from central governments that are barely in existence in, in, in the first place. So. Um, This is why I go back to, we should prepare to recognize that these groups or these entities are going to be here for for a very long time in different forms.
0: You visited Yemen as Assistant Secretary. The Biden administration is now giving priority to ending the war there. The UN has called it the worst humanitarian crisis in the world. Uh, The the administration's effort, I should just note, has been further complicated by attacks by the Iran-backed Ansar Allah or the Houthis on Saudi Arabia, which has forced uh, the kingdom to respond in recent days. But tell us about how you, when you were assistant secretary, approached Yemen uh, with regard to your responsibilities for conflict and stabilization operations, and what What did you learn there and how might those lessons inform post-conflict stability operations in Yemen, if indeed we can get to a ceasefire?
1: Sure. Thanks, Andrew. Um, I did have the opportunity to visit southern Yemen. I was in McCullough. Um, with the, the Yemen Affairs unit. We, we went with the delegation. I led the delegation there. And during that visit I had productive meetings with the governor, uh, local officials, many non-governmental organizations. And uh, one of the, the key takeaways was that th- this part of Yemen had very little to do with the civil war that was occurring in the northern and western parts of the country. In fact, there was relative stability in, in, in some parts of w- where we went um and had some of the conditions that would be amenable for further engagement when i we had again during the meetings my many meetings there when i asked the officials and the ngos what do they thought of the potential ceasefire in who because it was at that time that special Griffith, envoy griffiths was engaged in that national level ceasefire um most most of the the people didn't care. It wasn't that they didn't want to stop war, but the answer was unanimously: we care about Al McCullough. And then they went on to emphasize their most pressing demand over and over, and that was not surprisingly services. There's there's a a radio show that goes on in McCullough where people can call in their 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 problems, and and um, and again the surveys and and the, and the and the uh, statements made were o- overwhelmingly about services. The vast majority didn't even know in some of the surveys we conducted that, or were aware that there was a national level peace process going on. Again, not because it's not necessary and important, but because they were focused on the local component. And here I get to what were some of the lessons learned or lessons reinforced. Forced. The Yemen, Syria, Other fragile states, I've been pretty much across the world, many places in Africa and and others, these are highly hyper-fragmented states. So while we engage in very important negotiations and ceasefires at the national level, and I'm so pleased to hear that we have a special envoy, Lender King, leading that for the U.S. government, um, but There has to also be at a local level, how do we engage in these local ceasefires? And this is what brings me back to the way that we looked at the the global fragility strategy, that this is going to inform what we should expect. You will have pockets of stability, same thing in Afghanistan, and you can start small and work our way out. There's another component to this, and that is regional support. This is again, um, a regional issue, It has to be also negotiated with the key regional partners that border Yemen. And so that um, in addition to the local, how can you enhance economic opportunities? How can you get trade going again? There's a lot of components to it, but I can't emphasize enough the importance of starting small and going local.
0: As I mentioned in our introduction, you are one of the leading experts on Kurdish politics and society how can we understand better the situation of the Syrian Kurds and the relationship on the Kurdish between the Kurdish question in Syria and what's happening in Turkey?
1: Sure. Um, le- le- let me just go back a bit to, before addressing what's, what's happening with the Syrian Kurds, because I, I, I do want to tie this back to what we can expect uh, in terms of uh Realistic stabilization policies and what I see as a realistic end state, given that the United States is moving away from, you know, Wilsonian um, liberal interventionism. Um, The Kurds, the Syrian Kurds are a community, uh, a nation, but they are not homogenous like any other group. They are in distinct cantons, and if you look at this group historically, from the beginning of the state formation period in Syria, that nationalist project was always, um, let's say, led by intellectuals from Turkey, then later Kurdish-Iraqi political parties, Iraqi-Kurdish political parties. And this is not to say that there's not an authentic Syrian nationalism, because there certainly is, but to understand that it has been very transnationalized from the outset. And there is not a geographically continuous group uh, territory, but one in where different cantons or different provinces were treated distinctly from the outset with different dynamics. There are some PKK-leading groups, as we know, uh, and there are some that are not, that look at themselves as very clearly part of the Syrian state. So when you ask me, what what do I see for the Syrian Kurds, I don't see 36 solutions. Um, I see that they are in a landlocked region, highly dependent on regional actors their borders are critical there's a very long border with turkey and i cannot imagine i just can't see it how this region is going to thrive to survive um to have its people you know be educated and have economic opportunities and live in peace without some way dealing without dealing with the turkish state and of course with 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 the government in syria And, and we do not have a legitimate in, uh, interlocutor right now in Damascus, but the end state the, the, for the Syrian Kurds would, would be one in which they are uh, an integral part of the Syrian state um, in a decentralized administrative capacity um, like other components, and engaged in, in business and trade with, with, with the government of Turkey or th- where they can. Um, and In the meantime, as we go about trying to unify Iraqi Kurdish groups, the KDP with the PYD, I know this is good and well-intentioned, but that's, uh, in some ways, I think it's unrealistic. It's not to say that they can't work together, because they can. There's a lot of economic interests going on right now. There's a lot of business going on. But why should we expect... Two competing groups who have different visions of Kurdish nationalism to to come together um, in different territories and and unify their mission. It, it, we don't see this in any other parts of the world, and I don't know why we would expect that. I I personally would would go to the PYD, who has uh, authority, strong authority in some of the areas, and find those groups within. And this is not to delink them from the PKK because we all know that there's a strong influence there. but find those groups there are groups who are willing to work with Turkey to trade with Turkey and, and find those areas w- w- that where we can do that. So I would focus on economic opportunities. I would focus on opening trade. Um, Look what we did uh, in parts of the Middle East where we never thought the the Abraham Accords have forged relationships which were unthinkable years ago. But it started with business and it started with trade and opportunities and memorandums of understanding. So that's the way that I would approach it, understanding the very real geopolitical limitations of of the territories of, of the Syrian Kurds.
0: And one final question. Do you therefore believe that the differences between the United States and Turkey and our respective approaches to the Syrian Kurds can be reconciled?
1: I do. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a cynic in many ways, but it has to it, th- look. There are certain things where we do agree on what we do agree on, and one is the territorial integrity of, of the state of Syria. We agree with it, Turkey agrees with it. That was pretty much tantamount. That was, you know, there I don't I haven't heard anyone talk about breaking up the Syrian state and creating an independent Kurdish region because that was not on the table. It's it's one of the key issues is who's in Damascus, what kind of government is in Damascus, and who we can work with. So I think that once we have some form of legitimate government determined by the Syrian people that can run the state of Syria. Everything is not going to magically disappear, but we certainly can channel and allow those types of revenue sharing agreements, power sharing agreements that we saw emerge in Iraq between the Kurds in Iraq and the Iraqi government be formulated in some type of power sharing arrangement in Syria. There will s- certainly be tensions. They've existed for decades. As long as the PKK is around, across borders, lodged in Iraqi Kurdistan, lodged in Syria, parts in Iran, there is going to be tensions and a lot of other instability. You know, at the end of the day, this is a, a key part of this problem. So getting at the PKK issue, and that's going to be something that the governments of Turkey have to work out with the government of Damascus, as well as the government of of Iraq and, um, and, and Iran.
0: Denise, this has been great. Thank you for joining us today on on the Middle East.
1: Thank you, Andrew. It's been a pleasure.
0: I will return after this short break.
2: I'm Ben Kaspit, Al-Monitor veteran columnist reporting from Israel, one of the world's major news and action suppliers of all times, comparing to its tiny size. I've been covering and analyzing the political, diplomatic, and military arenas in Israel for over 34 years. My best-selling biography, The Netanyahu Years, was out two years ago. I covered seven prime ministers, one major war, two intifadas, one prime minister's assassination, two and a half peace treaties, four military operations in Gaza, and it's not letting up anytime soon. I'm glad to invite you to On Israel, our brand new podcast, where we will discuss major events in Israel and its surroundings, talk to decision-makers, leaders, and analysts, and try to understand the chaos that comes with the territory of Israel and the Middle East. You will never have a dull moment with us. See you soon here on Israel Al Monitor.
0: That was a fantastic conversation with Denise Natale. And I was especially taken not just with the critical innovations in U.S. approaches to conflict and stabilization policies that she discussed, but also her take that while it won't be easy and it's not assured, there still might be some common ground to be found for the U.S. and Turkey in Syria, including and even in dealing with Syrian Kurds. Thanks to our production team of Phil Colabro of El Monitor and Beowulf Roschlin of Two Square Media Productions. And thanks to all of you for listening today. We will return next week. And in the meantime, please sign up for this and our other El Monitor podcast on Israel at your favorite podcast platform.